Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. We shared this with other people we've worked with, and then they go on and literally they're doing $100,000 in revenue a month because of what we showed them. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Krantz, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. Hello and welcome back to episode number 83 of Perpetual Traffic. We've got a good one for you today. We've got a couple great guests on with us. Uh, we've got a five some. We got uh, we got Ralph, Molly, myself. We got Zach. We got Thomas, and uh, we're going to be getting into some pretty cool stuff today. We're going to be talking about crowdfunding. All right, we've got the guys that are partners and co-founders of Funded.today, and they've helped raise over a hundred million dollars across different crowdfunding campaigns like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. They've worked with over a thousand crowdfunding campaigns in the last two years. They're Indiegogo's number one marketing partner. And check this out, after Google, Facebook, and YouTube, they send more traffic to Kickstarter than anyone in the world. So Thomas Alvord reached out to me initially, who's been part of uh, part of our community for, for several years now. And uh, Thomas, man, thanks for reaching out. I sent this screenshot over to Ralph and Molly and they were like, we don't have a lot of stuff about this, you know, a digital marketer or in the marketplace. And what you guys are doing, both just in terms of using crowdfunding to launch a new product or add momentum to an existing campaign for anything. And then the the paid traffic that you guys are using to you know, almost assure a successful campaign is really, really cool. So we'd love to get into this stuff with you. We'd also love to even get into you know, what types of businesses or products might be good for crowdfunding, might not be good for crowdfunding, um, all that kind of stuff. So uh, once again, guys, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, glad to be with you. Glad to be here. Thank you. We've got Zach Smith and Thomas Alvord. And if you guys could just quickly give us the overview of how you guys got together, why you're doing this, why crowdfunding, and why people should kind of be listening to this today. 
four years ago, Keith, you had a Facebook marketing course that I had signed up for. At the time I was in law school and my brothers had a supplement company and they were killing it. So I started getting into internet marketing, even though I was in law school, just because I was like, man, look at these people. They're making money in their sleep. I want to do that. So I signed up for your course. And, you know, at first it was kind of slow going, but then I started picking up some big political campaigns and started working on some U.S. Senate and governor races. And at the time, Zach and I, we were just like acquaintances. And Zach did consulting and Zach had a client and the client was the Roos Sport. They had a wallet. It's for runners. And they messaged Zach and they're like, hey, have you heard of this thing called Kickstarter? And they had already sold 20 or 30,000 units going to different marathons and stuff. So they had an email list. They had sales. Things were going well, but they were trying to grow their business. And so they're like, hey, what if we kind of tried this Kickstarter thing out? And Zach's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So they asked Zach if, if he would do it you know, based off of a percentage of how much they raised. And so he said, okay, yeah, let's do that. He launched the campaign after a couple weeks, you know, he set some stuff up to have a good launch, emailed his list on launch day and did some other stuff, reached out to press. Then after about two weeks, his campaign kind of started dying down and he was looking at driving paid media. And that's where he messaged me and said, hey, Thomas, I know you do a lot of social media marketing, Facebook marketing. You're kind of the expert there. Well, here's this service. And he shared with me a website of this Facebook boost that you could do for your Kickstarter campaign. It was like you pay a flat amount, $500, $750, or $1,000 to boost your campaign. And at the different tiers, the highest tier was like the most targeted traffic. $500 was the least targeted. And he asked if it was a good idea. And I told him that was really the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And the reason is two reasons. One is whenever you run paid marketing, you always want to start with your audience that is the most narrow, that is the most likely to buy. And then secondly, I said, why would you spend $1,000? Why don't you spend $200 or $300? And if you have a good ROI, you keep spending your money. If you don't have a good ROI, you should turn it off. And so that's where he said, okay, well, do you want to run some stuff here? And I really wasn't thinking anything about it. I was just kind of like, ah, sure, whatever. I put some stuff up you know, created some lookalike audiences and did some overlays with, you know, a Kickstarter audience, kind of like what Keith has taught back in the past. Two weeks after that, we ended up raising like another 60 or $70,000. So from there, how did you get to here? What have you guys been able to do since then in a nutshell? There was another client called Free Waves, or not client at the time, but a campaign called Free Waves. And they were friends with the Roos Sport. And they're like, man, this was amazing. Your campaign had a super strong finish and our campaign is dying down. Now, Free Waves had raised $160,000 or $70,000, which is great. But Kickstarter is all or nothing funding. And they had a goal of $300,000 and they only had five days left. They had about 100 hours left. And they came to us and they said, hey, will you run this? And the, the catch was, though, they weren't going to pay us anything unless we got them funded. And Zach didn't really want to take the risk. And I wasn't financially in a position to do that because I had a political campaign that owed me like $50,000. And it was actually on my dad's credit card because I was still like, you know, trying to find my way and get my feet wet and, you know, get get things going. And Zach didn't want to do it. And I had to run a test and it had like good ROI, but I told them, I'm like, look, I can't do this. This is just too risky. I, I can't do this. And they and they just begged me. They're like, please, we know you can do it. It's like, yeah, easy for you to say because I'm the one that has all the risk. 
anyways, we went for it and, you know, a hundred hours later they had raised, like, we helped them raise over like $130,000 more. They ended up at like 317 or $320,000. So that's where we realized, wow, we're kind of onto something. First of all, number one, why should people even be thinking about crowdfunding and what maybe what kind of businesses or products are great for that? Or, or have you seen fail and not work and why? And then we'll get into the tactical of the traffic that you guys are using. Crowdfunding is amazing because you don't need to create a product to be able to take it to market and see if there's demand for it. So you can go and you can put your project or your campaign on Kickstarter and see how it performs. You might have a campaign that raises $15,000 and it might be like, hey, that's okay. That's a decent campaign. But you might decide, you know what? I don't want to actually go develop this campaign or this product. You know, a lot of people might go to Kickstarter and see a campaign that raises a million or $2 million, but looks can be deceiving. Really what matters and the metric we look at in trying to gauge the, the value of a campaign or a product is the EPV or the earnings per visitor. You know, we talk to people, oh, my conversion rate is 3% or my conversion rate's 8%. And really that means absolutely nothing to us because if your product is priced at $50,000 or if your product is priced at $2, a conversion rate isn't telling you anything. So essentially, by launching your campaign on Kickstarter, you can validate whether you have a good idea or not. Hey, your campaign might have raised $30,000, but you actually had a million visitors. And so based off of the people and eyeballs who actually see your product, this is actually a really bad idea. And your opportunity cost is too high, and you probably shouldn't pursue this. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs, and I think it's first-time entrepreneurs, I think serial entrepreneurs – are less attached emotionally to their product or their ideas. And so if it fails, they just say, hey, whatever, who cares? And they move on to the next thing because they realize that opportunity cost. So that would be one reason to launch it on, say, Kickstarter or Indiegogo. You can validate if you have a good idea. And Indiegogo, they don't require you to have a working prototype or anything. Kickstarter does if it's like a more advanced product or technology they want to see that you at least have like a working or basic prototype and that it's feasible that you're going to be able to deliver on what you say you're, you're creating. Otherwise, they will suspend your campaign. Indiegogo doesn't suspend campaigns hardly ever, but Kickstarter will. It doesn't matter if you've raised $4 million. There was a razor on Kickstarter that used like a laser for shaving and they had to raise $4 million, number one product on Kickstarter. And Kickstarter's like, okay, we don't see a prototype. It doesn't look feasible and they banned them and they don't talk to you. They don't give you a reason. So if you have a prototype though, Kickstarter is going to be your best bet. Uh, and then, you know, after that, you can transition to Amazon, you can transition to your website, but you're, you'll pretty much always have a bigger launch with Kickstarter. Now, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they're going to take 5% and then you have your credit card processing fees, which are about 3%. So you do have those fees that you would be losing out on but the cost benefit is usually much greater. In terms of like coming up with an idea, 
we have a formula that we kind of recommend, which is ubiquity plus tech. Ubiquity plus tech. So you look at the Pebble smartwatch, most funded crowdfunding campaign ever. Okay, You have a watch, which is a product that's ubiquitous, right? Ubiquitous meaning a product that is everywhere. Anyone and everyone could use it. Okay, They took ubiquity, but then they made the watch smart. They added tech to it. So another example, you have the coolest cooler. The coolest cooler raised, I believe it was 11 million. I forget the exact numbers, but they basically took a cooler. I mean, pretty much anybody has a cooler or if they don't, there would be benefit or utility for anyone kind of to to have a cooler for picnics or going to the beach or whatever, right? They basically added tech into that product. Some of the other campaigns that we've worked on is Trunkster Luggage. And Trunkster Luggage was one of the first smart luggages on Kickstarter, right? So they took luggage, something that's ubiquitous, and then made it smart, right? With GPS and, and USB charging and stuff like that. So if you're looking for a product, that would be one thing. Now, it doesn't always have to be tech. Another way to look at it would be ubiquity plus innovation. So it, it's something really novel or new. So for example, if you Google Polygon's Kickstarter, it's basically like a measuring spoon. That's like one measuring spoon that uses all of this like geometry stuff to change the dimension and the size of the measuring spoon. So you took something ubiquitous, a measuring spoon, but made it really innovative. Another thing we recommend to get an idea, go to Kickstarter and browse around and see for a given product category how much a given product has raised. We worked with a campaign. It was a candle, and we raised them $15,000, and they were all upset saying, oh, you guys didn't do anything for us, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, in terms of the market and Kickstarter, for a candle, it's not a huge market. You can see the most funded candle before yours had only raised like $8,000. So relative to the market on Kickstarter, we actually doubled what the biggest campaign ever did. So that's something else we recommend. If you come up with an idea, who cares about an idea? I would come up with 10 different ideas because, again, I I love the Pareto Principle 80-20, which basically says if you came up with 10 ideas and you were to launch every single one of them, 20% of them would generate 80% of all the funds that you would raise. And one of them would probably generate like 50 or 60% of all the funds that you raise. So if you really are thinking of launching a crowdfunding campaign, don't come up with one idea. Browse Kickstarter, see what people say, and kind of look at any product. Hey, how could I make this smart? Maybe the answer is not obvious, but you know, as you think about it, it might come to you, and, and you can start to get new ideas. And, and it doesn't always need to be smart or techie. Again, just browse on Kickstarter, see what has done well. And, and to that point, I would also comment, when looking at what other campaigns have done, if you try to just imitate and kind of have a knockoff, usually it's not going to do as well. One last thing, and we call this the triple F. If you're going to launch a campaign on Kickstarter, the triple F is your friends, family, and fools. Before you launch, go and ask your friends and ask your family and ask other people who might be willing to support your campaign and show them your prototype or your mock-up and say, hey, I'm going to launch this in four months on Kickstarter. And you know, I'm going to sell it for $30. If I launch this, 
on the day I launch, could I count on you to back this project? Because I want to get 100 people on the day I launch who I know will back it so I can have a really strong launch. And that's beneficial for two reasons. One is the popularity ranking on Kickstarter is primarily or heavily weighted based off of the number of backers per day you have. So if you have a strong launch, it's going to launch you up to the popularity to help you get more momentum, which is then easier to get more press. You have more social proof when you run your paid media. So that's kind of the genesis, the the initial thrust that you always want to have. But additionally, a lot of people, here's what they do. Hey, so-and-so, hey, mom, hey, brother, whatever. Hey, I'm going to launch this on Kickstarter. What do you think about it? Oh, yeah, that's really awesome. That's cool. And, and I mean, I say the same thing to other people because you don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. But if you actually ask them, can I count on you? And it might be a little uncomfortable and you might feel like, oh, this isn't the right fit for them. But you still just have to ask and ask everybody and not be ashamed and just say, will you back this? Because then they're going to say yes or no. And if they say no, then they'll be more honest and tell you why they don't like it. And, and you can make it more comfortable and say, you know, if you don't want to, that's totally fine. You know, but as I'm developing this, you know, maybe you could share why you wouldn't be interested in it. Right. So that sure. way people don't feel like guilty. Now, if you do that, you're going to be way better off. And here's why. With Kickstarter, you still have some costs, right? You need to put together a Kickstarter video. You need to do your Kickstarter page. It's a lot easier than you know, creating your own e-commerce website store, Shopify store, because it's all there and, you know, the layout and everything set for you. It's kind of just plug and play. But if you do this friends, family, and fools, you will save yourself a lot of time. And again, it goes back to the idea of at least generating 10 ideas because then you can go, oh, you don't like that? Well, what if I were to launch this one? Would this interest you more? And you can kind of gauge and fill what might be of interest. I think that's a great formula. I mean, what you were talked about, ubiquity and tech or ubiquity and innovation. I mean, obviously, those are probably guidelines that you guys use when you're deciding on whether or not you're going to take on a particular client to, to help them out with their advertising and their, their promotion. But just in general, I mean, I think what you just discussed in the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes was really all about like, get your first idea for a business to know that it's actually good prior to going out there and you know, renting, uh, you know, factory space for your new wallet that you know you're going to sell millions of when in fact there's hundreds just like it on Kickstarter. So what can you do to really test that idea as to whether it's good? You know, looking at Kickstarter, just like what you're talking about, browsing around, you know, seeing a candle, you know, probably not that great if it only raised 8K and you guys raised double that, you know, all that stuff right there is a great way to test things before you go out and you commit a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money into it. So that's awesome. So one question, so is Kickstarter for somebody that if they, maybe they sell a physical product, maybe they sell a supplement, maybe they sell a tech gadget. If they're launching a new supplement or a new product, would Kickstarter or one of these platforms work for someone like that? That's actually how Zach got started. Zach and I, right, with the Roo Sport, they had already sold their wallet, but then they went to Kickstarter and launched a, a new product. So part of the reason, if you have an existing product going to Kickstarter, part of the reason it will do really well is if you're already selling it, you kind of already know that there's demand or interest for your product, right? Even though the user base and the demographic might be different on Kickstarter than the traffic on your website or somewhere else, you know there's demand for it. Second, launch day is really important. And so assuming you've been capturing the email addresses of the people who have been purchasing your product, 
by going to Kickstarter, you have this email list that you can tap into to drive traffic to say, hey, you know, go back to this project we just launched on Kickstarter. But then, you know, the third is you already have this audience targeting that allows you to target your paid media with lookalike audiences and other stuff more effectively on Kickstarter. There are some products that aren't going to do well on Kickstarter, like apps. Usually with an app, people are accustomed to getting an app for free. And also, if there is a cost involved, usually it's like three bucks or something. And so where you're asking people to contribute $20, $50 for an app that they don't even know if they might get, you know, 10% of campaigns never come to fruition. The creators are not able to develop it or create what they thought they'd be able to create. And so there's some risk involved. So apps usually don't do well. And that's where I kind of go back and say, hey, if you have a product and you want to see how it might do on Kickstarter, go browse Kickstarter and see for your type of product how much that type of product has raised in the past to get an idea for how big that market might be on Kickstarter. All right. So let's get to some tactical stuff. So what's the next step? You've got a product, you know, it's going to be on Kickstarter. What's some of the best success you've had as far as the traffic strategy? In terms of running paid media, Facebook is kind of the holy grail just because you have so much traffic that you're able to tap into, right? Where they got over a billion users and the targeting is so much better. And we've tested multiple times. We've gone to Pinterest, we've gone to Reddit ads, we've gone to StumbleUpon and Twitter and Google AdWords, right? We, we've gone back, we've tested all of those things. Really, the only two things that are going to be profitable for you would be Facebook ads and Google AdWords for remarketing. Now, with Kickstarter, running mobile traffic, we usually don't find that it works. Now, with all of the campaigns we've run, we've gathered and have a lot of data for audiences that perform well that are likely Kickstarter backers, and we're able to run mobile traffic and have a good ROI there. But usually what we found to work best is to run traffic on desktop, on Facebook, in the newsfeed, and then target your audiences. But if you run your traffic and you target people who like Kickstarter, it's going to be way too broad. So really, you're going to need to target people who like Kickstarter and then kind of have one other audience that narrows it down. And again, if you have a lookalike, that's where you're going to be more effective for people who don't. That's another reason people hire funded today is literally we have, you know, over a thousand different audiences of different interests. So we have tons of lookalike audiences to really hone in, whether it's, you know, a wallet or a luggage. Gotcha. Gotcha. We see that a lot. Like with our new course, Facebook Momentum, basically built a brand new business from scratch. New URL, mm-hmm. new Facebook page, new Facebook ad account, and new lead magnets you know, for a local business, digital product, as well as an e-commerce product. And so initially, the interests are going to be the best, right? We can use lookalike audiences based off our leads, our fans, but you know, we have barely any fans starting out and barely any leads. And then over time, what you're going to see is your lookalike audiences, a lot of them are going to outperform the interests. But once you gather that data, is that kind of what you guys have seen now? You guys have built that up and you're kind of specializing in certain niches. Exactly. And and what's difficult with Kickstarter, Kickstarter, unless your campaign is successfully funded, the backer data, you as a creator don't get access to during the campaign. So you might have 5,000 backers 
and your campaign's been running for three weeks, but it's not over. One of the strategies we've done, and this is another kind of nobody else does this, so this is a valuable thing to do. You actually do a survey and you send out a survey. Hey, we're trying to figure out, you know, for a stretch goal and, and you want it to be something legitimate, right? It's not just kind of made up, but Hey, what's, you know, a, a new product color that you guys would like, why don't you vote? And then one of the fields would be an email. It's not required, but we just have the email there. And then you could take those emails and create a lookalike audience based off of it. Now with Indiegogo, as the backers come in, people's credit cards are charged right then. Unlike Kickstarter, that the cards get charged after the campaign's over. So you have a few campaigns that don't get charged. But with Indiegogo, you get all of that backer data right when it happens. So if you have 500 backers, you could go use it. And you know, we found that we need usually at least 1,000 backers on a campaign to be able to do a survey because you might have 30% that are outside of the U.S., and then not everyone responds and not everyone puts in their email. And you need at least enough emails to have it be a, a decent lookalike audience. That's totally cool. The, uh, the, so the interest targeting there, just for people who maybe just uh, aren't aware of it, but it's really, it's, it's two different strategies there. It's taking a very broad interest, in this case, Kickstarter, and then doing either a lookalike overlay. And these guys obviously have been in lots of different industries. So it narrows your audience down and makes it much more targeted as opposed to you know, the interest targeting for... Uh, Kickstarter is probably in the tens of millions, I would guess, uh, or doing a flex targeting where you're doing Kickstarter as an interest and then whatever the interest is specifically for that product. So super smart guys to uh, to do that and something that we, we definitely advocate, especially when you're first starting out. What we've started doing for the last 10 months is doing email lead generation for the clients we work with. So essentially what we do is we'll set up a landing page and, you know, there's lead pages, there's other sites that allow you to, just, you know, throw up a squeeze page. You know, you, you basically have a squeeze page and, you know, you send traffic to it. And so on the day you launch, maybe you have a thousand or two thousand opt-ins. And what you'll do is now you have an email list of people you can email on the day you launch. And then in addition to that, you then have an audience that you could use to create a lookalike audience. So you kind of get the benefits of both world by having a stronger launch and then also having that lookalike audience. We just launched a campaign called Juicer, and I think we had generated 18,000 opt-in emails for them before they launched. And on the first day they launched, they raised $100,000. Now, if we didn't have those emails, I think the campaign probably would have raised maybe $10,000. So... Again, because it puts you in the popular category, you get that organic traffic, you have a strong start, you have more social proof. It kind of just gets the, the ball rolling. And what's also interesting is we ran traffic because we have a cash back program where people opt in and they get 10% cash back when they're on our list. And we sent traffic to our cash back website and our opt-in rate was so horrible. And I think we were getting opt-ins for like $5 a piece, right? It was just a waste. You know, they say in copywriting, the more specific you can be, the better, right? So you don't say, hey, we've helped, you know, creators raise a lot of money. You'd say, no, we've helped creators raise $104,362,000, right? The more specific is always the better. But it's also, I found the same with email lead generation. When we're sending traffic to our cash back opt-in page, people don't really care and they don't opt in. But where we create a page where it's saying this specific product is launching on this specific day and it gives you these specific benefits, then you have a really good opt-in rate because there's something 
specific people are excited about instead of something just bland and generic. Sure. So what's your hook in your ad? I'm just curious, like, how do you get, you guys obviously have a successful formula here and every industry is different, but like in general, there's sort of some general terms that you can sort of say, this is kind of how we get people interested because for us in the agency, as well as, you know, anyone we teach this stuff, the hook and how you actually get people's interest is the most challenging thing. And the Facebook, you know, the nuts and bolts, the block and tackle, so to speak, is actually easy by comparison, relatively. Tell us a little bit about that. So basically the formula we use for our ads, and and this is actually like really, really valuable. You know, we usually don't share this, but we'll share And I'm not just saying that, like we don't really share this with people. We share this with other people we've worked with saying, hey, could you work with us post Kickstarter? And we're like, hey, we don't really do that. And then they go on and literally they're doing $100,000 in revenue a month because of what we showed them. Yeah. So we're used to that. First off, with your image, we have what's called the founder copy, where if you have an image with you as the creator or the founder of the product with with the product in the picture, usually that's going to perform really well. And you don't want these fancy looking photos, right? You don't want it to be glossy, look like it'd be a magazine ad or something. Like literally, go take it with your phone because you want it to look organic. You want it to look natural. What happens is people are scrolling through their Facebook feed and then they see something with the super glossy image and then right away their brain knows it's an ad and then they ignore it. But if they're browsing through and it looks like a picture that their friend might have posted, then they're not going to have their brain turn off and and just skip it and keep scrolling. So generally that is always going to perform best. And that's probably also going to be for your website or any other type of marketing you're doing. Now, another reason the founder copy does well is crowdfunding, by definition, is all about the group and the crowd. And so there's a social element to it. Facebook, obviously, is a social network. And so you also have another social network, which is crowdfunding on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So if you maintain that social element, I think that also provides benefit. Six months ago or 12 months ago, Facebook came out with some stuff saying, hey, if you use clickbait, your ads are going to be penalized. But there's a difference between clickbait and curiosity-based ads. And we chatted with our our Facebook ad rep. And the ad rep said, yeah, you you guys aren't clickbait. Clickbait is where you talk about one thing and then the landing page is something totally different. You'll never guess what happened next. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Usually we try to base it around something like what this new smart pen does is incredible. You'll love how it changes how you work. So they kind of see it. They, you know, it looks personal and now they're curious, they're clicking and then they're watching the video to learn more about it. You know, we've got an expression inside the agency called ghetto is good when it comes to ad creatives, because we've got, we've got two designers on staff and they're super good, but sometimes they're, they're, they're just too slick. And then I'll do some crappy creative on Canva and it'll do better. And it's horrible looking, but it works because it doesn't look as professional. The same thing goes with video and video ads. You know, that's why selfie videos and walking around and people like Gary Vaynerchuk, um, are, you know, the authentic video is what people like. If it's too polished, guess what? It looks like a commercial. And we have to keep telling our clients that too. It's it's crazy. They're like, what is this crap? Why did I pay for this? And then they see the results come in and they're like, oh, okay, never mind. 
Yeah, we have the same challenges, without a doubt. We usually don't show our creative to our clients. Because <laughs> usually, you know, it's in a sense proprietary. We don't want people saying, oh, here's, here's how to do the ad. And then they fire us and then, you know, just go do it on their own. But then they, they usually always come back. To but it. then they yeah. see it in the feed and they're like, whoa, you can't be representing my brand like this. Yep. What, what brand do you have? First of all, you're on Kickstarter. <laughs> Let's get you Good to make boy. a lot of money first and then you can build a brand. We always have to kind of bring them back down to earth because, I mean, these are their babies. This is what they spent their life dreaming of and thinking of. And sometimes when nobody wants their baby, it's a pretty terrifying time in their life. Dude, I love it. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> About a year ago, Rachel on my team, she had this Siberian Husky that had this problem. They didn't know what it was, couldn't eat without intense pain and throwing up, regurgitating. And so she had somebody help her set up a GoFundMe campaign to raise money because she's 23 years old, just got married. And I was like, hey, you know what? Instead of me donating, let's make this educational. So I go, let's create a video ad. She had like a 15 second video that she made of the dog that she sent to her vet. And so... On the fly, we created an ad, a video ad to run traffic to her GoFundMe page directly. And then it just ran for about, I don't know, six to eight weeks and got about a four to one ROI real quickly. Like I said, it was a 32 minute setup. And uh, next thing you know, get an email from her two months later that it wasn't for that campaign. Her dog would not have survived. She wouldn't have the money to be able to continue taking it back to the vet because they didn't know what the problem was. They finally, finally figured it out. It was a pretty cool story, but some of the audiences that we targeted, it reminds me of earlier in this interview, you know, we were targeting things like animal shelter, humane society, and those types of things, right? Along with like Siberian Husky lovers. And, but it seems like the ones that were related to the animal shelter and humane society stuff were the ones that uh, had given us a little bit of the best results, more than the people that were just in the Siberian Huskies. Back then, you couldn't even build up a custom audience, I don't think, off your video views when I, when I did this. Um, now we would be creating lookalikes based off those video viewers very quickly. We kind of always have like this three-step process where the goal of the ad is to create the curiosity to get the click. The goal of the page is to drive the sale, and the video on that page is, is the, the primary component. So most of our ads are not video-based ads. Sometimes we do GIFs, which are pretty cool, and they, they're kind of like little mini videos essentially but without sound or anything, and they just move around pictures if those of you are familiar with GIFs or not. But those generate the click, and then the video is the Kickstarter video. And we spend a lot of time trying to make those videos convert, but our goal on the advertisement is to get as many eyeballs on the Kickstarter or Indiegogo page and then let the video do the conversion process. I totally love that, love it. This has been a big game changer for us in a lot of cases. Basically, you're combining two steps into one, right? You know, We've got situations where a client is selling a $60 a month recurring uh, subscription supplement and we're taking them directly cold traffic from Facebook to buy that supplement. And so it's shortening down the process and it's because the video does that. The video educates them, it makes them aware of the problem or makes them aware of a solution that they didn't know about. And then it basically transitions and segues into why I created this product or service to make it easier for you, make it cheaper for you or whatever it is, right? so what we've done, we've been able to do in a lot of cases, if it's done properly, is shorten down that process. So you still have the same order like what you're doing now. I wouldn't change anything that you're doing now, but I would test a video ad where you can take people directly to the page, but they're going to be ready. When you're using video in the newsfeed, you don't necessarily, and we've split tested this a ton, is 
you know, using a video to a either a video or non-video landing page. And you would typically think, well, you use a video ad to a non-video page. Well, not necessarily in not all cases, but the point is, is that the ads, all of a sudden it changes. Your goal of your ad is to get the click and to arouse that interest. And then the goal of the page is to get the sale. Actually, your ad copy with a video is just to get them to watch the video, to get their interest and to get them to stop the thumb of the scroll of the newsfeed and then tell them next, watch this video to find out more. And then the next step is to click off the ad to the page where there could be another video that maybe has something else different to describe, maybe a little bit more description about the product or whatever it happens to be, or maybe a non-video and it's just sort of a more informational page. But there's lots of different ways to do it. And video, they're already, by the time they click to go to the landing page, they're already warmed up. They're already like ready to pretty much give their money. They just need to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. The other thing is that within your audiences, and this is important for you, the listener, if you're targeting somebody, let's say it's a 2 million person audience, some people need more and some people need less. And so the curiosity-based hook, image only taking them to the page to watch a video, is going to resonate with a good percentage of people in that 2 million person audience. There's going to be other people that resonate better with video or are just faster movers, if that makes sense, right? And they're they're going to get it. They're going to watch the whole video. And they're going to be ready to take action when they get to your Kickstarter page or landing page if you're selling a product or having somebody opt in. So that's why I say you do both if you can. You start with whatever you have, you get momentum, and then you add the next level and you see what happens. And it's like, hey, you know what? If the video guys aren't converting, it doesn't matter because we're building them up as warm audiences and and our other campaign that's running with the image, the curiosity-based, might grab them or vice versa. They might see the other one first. And you get deeper penetration into those audiences that are already working for you, exactly what Keith says. So that supplement example that he used, I mean, that's just one of three or four different campaigns that we we do, you know, some are for lead magnets, you know, which have an offer on the thank you page. Some are straight video right to a sales page and some are just completely different types of videos. And it's the blending of everything that makes it all work because different people respond to different stimuli. And, you know, for something like a, a Pebble smartwatch, the video that I would immediately think of is just show how cool the thing is in a video, a short video under 60 seconds. So you can run it on Facebook and on, on Instagram and then send them to a page where there's maybe a little bit more description. But I mean, right there, that's going to get people's attentions. Yeah, this is good stuff. Good stuff. So to kind of wrap it up in general, you've given a ton of great, great stuff here. Um, you've talked about some of the mistakes people make. You've talked about some of the products that are that aren't good or are not allowed. Is there any specific big overarching things you can think of that you would want to give a piece of advice to everybody? Yeah. So my advice would be one is to just keep pushing and don't give up. And uh, if you haven't like, you know, taken that first step, because I imagine there's people on here like, oh, should I go to your guys' summit? You know, the conversion and traffic summit, or should I go try to launch this thing? And, And they have this fear and this worry and really, you just have to take the leap. And second, I remember another uh, internet marketer who once shared that he knew two people who like, had no money, were homeless, didn't have a place to sleep. And then within like six months, we're both making over like a million dollars a year, like separate cases, right? And and I was so poor. I had absolutely nothing. And I remember showing my wife and I was like, look at this. Look at this. I was like, if you just find something, if you just get something that works – it can then take off, right? Because there's the risk reward. And as a owner of, of a business or a product, 
you owned all of the margin and all of the growth, right? All of the profit. And for me, it literally took like five years. Dirt poor. My wife was ticked at me like, dude, why don't you just go get a law job? You're an attorney with the Utah bar. Like, this is ridiculous. I literally was going door to door selling like satellite to like make ends meet on the side, even though I had a law degree. But it's because I kept trying this and trying to get, you know, stuff to work. And then it finally did. It'll finally click him. Your first rendezvous might work or it might be your 10th. But if you keep going, you'll finally hit it. So my advice would be to just keep pushing and it will happen. It's kind of like the Nike model. Just do it. There's so many times where it looks like it's miraculous or amazing, but then we look back on it and we can kind of go back and trace our steps. And now that our company's eight figure a year earning company and we've traced and systematized everything that we do. We can literally document all the processes that led us along the way that we are. So for you that are just starting out, just do it. Fell fast is one of our other mottos. If it, if it fails, it's not really a failure. It's a way to learn how to not do anything. The whole Thomas Edison, 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb. I think it's really true. Thomas messed around with this stuff so long, going through your courses, going through your training, and eventually found one thing that worked. And that one thing has led to like 20 things that work now. But it took him forever to make it work, but he never gave up. He kept testing, he kept trying, and eventually it worked out. Eventually it worked out pretty well for him. Awesome stuff. Uh, once again, digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. This is episode 83. We'll have all the uh, show notes, we'll have the links to the articles that they mentioned. And uh, once again, you can go to uh, funded.today to find out more about uh, Thomas and Zach's awesome company. And guys, thanks a lot for sharing everything you did today. This has been great. And uh, other than that, uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Krantz, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. John Moran here. Q1 is closing and it probably didn't go as well as you'd hoped. I'm sure your agency is telling you that they crushed it, but in reality, it probably crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you, or if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what, go to tier11.com forward slash apply. That's tier11.com forward slash apply. And we'll get set up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make agencies look good.